The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Uh, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, and the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen. I know many of you are feeling this already. I think I am a lot this week. It's always true. Sometimes you feel it more often than not. Here's how I'm putting it into words. We live in a futile world, and that can make it really hard to endure faithfully. We live in a futile world, and that can make it really hard to endure faithfully. So futility means this. Basically, things are, are broken. They don't work like they're supposed to. Um, it's true at work. It's true in relationships. It's true in our bodies. It's true in the earth. It's true in our hearts. It's true in churches. Things don't work. And that makes it hard to endure. Sometimes you just think, I I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I, I want to quit. And think of all the different ways this is real in our lives. Some of us are walking through horrible health challenges, right? What, our bodies are futile. <laughs> they don't always work the way they're supposed to. So if that's happening to you or if you're walking with someone through that, you know it's easy to lose hope or become discouraged. Um, just... It's hard to get up in the morning. It's hard to endure because of, the, because of the futility. Or how about in relationships? How many of you have noticed that people are messy? Okay. How many of you realize that you also are messy? <laughs> okay. And then you combine messy one with messy two and it's more messy. There's futility in our relationships. It's hard to endure um, to endure faithfully with one another because of the futility. Not only that, there's futility in our hearts. It can be hard to endure with passion in following Jesus. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. You remember being excited once about Jesus, seeing the world in a new way. You found truth and love like never before. It was changing you. And then it kind of wore off like a buzz. Now you're tempted just to be a nice person who's spiritual. Sometimes you wonder if you're living any differently than any other nice atheist down the block. It's hard to endure faithfully. Futility in our hearts. Or think of ministry. You, you, you got a passion for the local church. You wanted to be there. You wanted to hear the word of God. You wanted to contribute. You wanted to build others up. This was important to you. And then, uh, futility. It didn't go like you'd hoped didn't get the response you expected, all of a sudden it's like flat soda, you know? Fizz is gone, don't wanna drink this anymore. Makes it hard to endure, hard to keep going faithfully because of the futility. Or how about evangelism? Used to be excited about Jesus and his uniqueness 
and you had this passion for others that did not know him, and it gave you a motivation. You wanted to share it, but it gets hard. Now you're letting go and letting God to the point where maybe you're letting go of obedience. Uh, Maybe patience has turned into, I haven't done this in two years. Can you remember the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? It's hard to endure faithfully, isn't it? It's hard to keep going because of the futility. Not that it's just in the world, it's in others, it's in me. So the question for this morning is, are you going to keep going? Are you going to endure faithfully? Are you gonna keep swimming or will the current carry you away? And what is it that can give us the strength to keep swimming against that fury of futility? What is it that's gonna enable us to endure faithfully, no matter the difficulty? Well, we're finishing uh, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians this morning, and, and we know Paul's been talking about the absolute importance of the resurrection. Really, this is in two parts. The first is that Jesus Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. This is everything for the Christian. It proves Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he would do. Without the resurrection, uh, everything about Christianity is meaningless. So you've, you've got to get this settled, right, in your brains, in your heart. Did Jesus rise? If he did not rise, you have a weird hobby being here this morning. Let's quit. Um, If he didn't rise, throw Christianity out. But if he did, bow the knee entirely. He's Lord. He rose. It's everything. But there's a second part of this too. Paul insists that if you trust Christ, because he rose, you will as well. You will as well. So you've gotta get this settled too. Are you going to rise from the dead in a new body an unspoiled body with no futility and live forever with him. Are you gonna rise from the dead? If you're not, look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This means if you won't rise from the dead, then let's quit pretending that anything we do here is meaningful. There's no such thing as meaning. So basically, go get whatever pleasure you can in whatever ways seem good to you because nothing really matters. Evidently, Queen did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But if you are going to rise, if you are going to rise from the dead, that means everything matters. The way you're thinking, the way you're talking, the way you're feeling, everything you're doing, it matters. Are you gonna rise? Do you believe that? That's gonna be the wind in our sails. That's gonna be the energy that keeps us swimming, even in this world of futility. So we have high stakes this morning. We're gonna do three things. We're gonna see our enemy this morning. I'm, uh, I'm calling him the three-headed monster. I can do that, revelation is symbolic and it calls Satan a big dragon. So here we've got a dragon today, the three-headed monster. We're gonna see the monster that brings this futility and we're gonna see how helpless we are before that. We can't beat it. But then number two, we're gonna see our hero. We're gonna see the one who's come and has done everything we could never do. And then number three, hopefully we are gonna see how what he's done gives us what we need to endure faithfully through anything, even in the midst of this feudal world. So our enemy, our hero, and the strength that he gives us. So let's start in verse 56. Let's look at our three-headed enemy, three-headed monster that wrecks us with futility. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. Do you see the three things there? Let's start from the end. The power of sin is the what? Law. Law's one head on your enemy. The power of what is the law? Sin. Sin's the second head on this enemy. And the sting of what is sin? Death. That's your three-headed enemy nobody in here can beat. 
law, sin, and death. So I want to walk through these with you, and it's, it's going to be pretty dark at first because we're talking about the enemy we can't beat, but just hang on, okay? Hang on. But we need to see how we can't beat this. We need to see it. So what's the law? What is that? How would you define it? I think it's obvious that as created moral beings, we live under a moral law. You can hear this when you argue with one another. Right? When we're arguing, what do you say? You were wrong. And usually the person will, will not, you know, the person you're arguing with won't say, hey, hold on, I don't believe in such a thing as a right and a wrong. They'll have an excuse as to why they weren't wrong. But they're still assuming there is such a thing as wrong. They're still assuming, if I had done what you said as you said I did it, yes, that would be wrong, because there is a wrong. But do you hear it? Anytime we're like, that's injustice, you can't do it, we're, we're shouting out, hey, there is a moral law over all of us, and we're all responsible underneath that law. You watch the news, you don't like it, that's wrong. Wait, are you assuming there's some reason that tells us how we ought to behave? All of us? Yeah. And I love it when atheists, you talk to an atheist and they tell you how wrong religious people are. And the first thing I like to say is, yeah, you're right. We have been wrong many times. But what is this wrong you speak of? Where, where did you get that from? If we're all material and we're all just acting according to physical law, what standard are you judging me by again? That's my worldview. <laughs> Are you using the Ten Commandments on me? <laughs> We're all under a moral law. And of course, who's the only one that can give such a thing? Who's the only one that can give a moral law that's over everyone at all times and all places? Only God could do that. In the scriptures, you see God give the law in a lot of ways, various ways. You look at the law he gives to Adam. He said, don't eat of the tree. I think that means, Adam, the law is you need to look to me to decide what's right and wrong. I'm the authority on what's right and wrong. So you not eating the trees, you trust me. You submit to me on that. You surrender to me. You let me be God. You be the creator, creation. Things will go great. What did Adam do? No, I want to be like God. I want to make the choice. Or you look at God's law to Israel. No pretend gods, right? Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't covet. It's a good, it's a, those are some good laws, foundation of society right there. Keep your word. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. What did Israel say to God's law? No thanks. What does the world say to God's law? No thanks. Are you, are you look at the way Jesus summed up the law in the Gospels. Love the Lord your God with everything you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every time, all the way. And love your neighbor as yourself, in the same way you care for yourself, think about yourself, provide for yourself, you love for others that way. That's the law. How many of you have kept any of those? We haven't. And somebody might say, hey, nobody's perfect. Well, look at this verse, Matthew 5, 48. Oh, no. You must therefore be perfect. God's holy, he's righteous, he hates sin. The law is submit to him, surrender to him, be like him, please him, love him, love one another. Do you see how vicious this monster of the law is? I mean, in one sense, it's good, right? All of these laws are good. If we could actually do them, that would be incredible. They're good. They become poison when they start dealing with us because we don't come close to keeping it. And I think we should each sense here our inability. If God judged you even by your own, you die, you stand before Jesus. If you were judged even by how you've kept your own standards, how would you do? So in other words, all the things you got really angry at other people for doing, the way they talked to you, you were offended, you were bent, you were angry, you were bitter. And then God just said, all right, let me show you what you've thought and said. Would you pass that test even just based on your own standard? Not a chance. 
What about his standard? Well, the game's just over before it starts. The law is our enemy because we're so guilty before it. We're caught red-handed. I remember once in high school, I had really been bad. (laughs) And my mom, she had this skill at being kind of like a lawyer. I remember sitting in the living room and she kept asking me questions. I had a little bit of a moral compass. But I saw my world crashing in around me. And she exposed all my lies (laughs) with her questions. And in the end, I was like, I was bad. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the law does. You know, our little sneaky hearts. Oh, I'm a good person. Why are you going to go to heaven? I'm a good person. I'm not no Hitler. I've been to church a couple times. And the law comes out. Thou shalt not covet. The law comes out. Thou shalt not lie. The law comes out. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, the law, and, and we're exposed. The light shines and we're naked. Guilty. Second head on this monster is sin. Sin. What is sin? How would you define sin? It's far more than behavior or breaking rules. Far more. It's the attitude of your heart that expresses itself in how you break the rules. It's the attitude of your heart. You could keep one rule and do it for the wrong reason, and that's sin. It's an attitude of hostility towards God. The attitude of sin demeans God. It says, God, you're not worthy. You're not good. You're not desirable. You're not worthy of my life. You don't deserve to be the authority. Um, By the way, of course, that's irrational. God is the source of all good. He is love. Of course, he's course he's worthy but we demean that we deny that and then as we deny him we want to replace him with something else so God I know you're the best but actually I would rather have money or I know you're the best but I'd actually rather do this and so God you're actually not good enough to satisfy me you're not good at being God so get out the way something else is coming in and I think if you look at the heart of any one of even the smallest of your sins that's what you're doing I think that's what we're doing every time you know one of the one of the law commands in the New Testament is never return evil for evil I think that line exposes us maybe more than any other because we say we hate the evil someone else has done to us and then what tends to come out so quickly is evil back at them which makes me think I don't think we really hate evil I think we love pride. <laughs> and if somebody gets in the way of our pride, they're gonna pay. Have you, ever, have you ever caught yourself in that moment? And you thought when you said that word, like you had every right to say what you said in that mean and nasty way. But really, you were saying, your heart said it so fast. God, your word on forgiving people and responding in kindness is total trash. No, you're not enough for me right now. I need to fight for myself. Get out of my way. You know, when I, look at, when I look at myself, honestly, I see that kind of corrupt idolatry, even in the little passive-aggressive barb you can throw. That's sin. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 7 about sin. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That word flesh here... I think if we, you could sum it up as saying it's, it's selfish pride. That's what the flesh is. And so the mindset on self, hostile to God. So that's that attitude of sin. I, enemy, God, you're my enemy. I don't want you. I don't like you. Go away. And that's a picture of our hearts. Our hearts are sinful, which means how are you going to fix yourself if you have a sinful heart? If the core is rotten, and that's why all these other things are echoing out, how does the core, that which is rotten, fix itself? You can't. Again, I just want, I want us to see our inability. We are unable to meet the requirements of the law, and we are unable to fix our sin problem. This is a monster we cannot beat. And it adds up to this. Look at Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin 
is death. Law, sin, death. Wages, what are those? Wages are something you earn. You go to work, you deserve to get paid, amen? Amen, okay? You deserve it, you do. Sin deserves death. So when you rebel against God and break his law, it's like you're asking for, investing in death, and you're getting a great interest rate. More sin, more death, more sin, more death. The wages of sin is death. God is life, we said no thank you. God is the judge, we've denied what is good. We, we've been asking for death. And like we said in the beginning, we see this death in all sorts of ways, relational death. I mean, some of the worst pains in our lives are for relationships that should have been one thing, and then sin, and then death. And we're still living in the echoes of people's sin and death from generations ago. Psychological death. What's going on? Deep depression, hurt, anguish, loneliness, pain we can't even describe. Global death, it's part of it. Hurricanes that wreck communities. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're talking a lot about physical death. Our biological futility is related to our moral failure. The wages of sin is death, and you know this. I think there's still a one-to-one correlation between born and died, as far as I know. A couple people had to die twice, Lazarus, poor guy. Um, Can you feel, I mean, some of you are young, and you're like, oh, I know I'll die, but, you know. I'm still medium young, depending on which one of you I ask. You're a young man still. Thanks. Thanks. You're going to die. And some of us older ones, we're facing disease. People we love, we know this is more, you know, the whole down, up, down the hill thing. We're more down the hill. And how incapable are you, are you of getting out of that one? What are you going to do to preserve your body? We, could, we try in Orange County. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Keep the ones you love close and never lose them. You're going to lose. You see this monster? I mean, it's a real monster. And it's three-headed, and we can't beat it. Law can't keep it. Sin, poisoned hearts, death. And isn't that the cause of the futility? That's what makes it hard to endure. That's the current that wants to sweep us away It's in us, it's in others, it's all around. So I hope you see we have a totally, we are totally helpless before this enemy. But, now let's just enjoy this. Look back at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory. So we get to watch now as Jesus Christ, the only one, comes in and crunches the head on law. And sucks out the poison on sin. And rips out the fangs on death. The only one who's won the victory. Now, you remember, the law is over us as a standard that we don't and can't keep, and it exposes us as deeply, horribly guilty. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Fulfill them. Jesus has done what what nobody can do. And the more you think about it, the more amazing it is. Uh, For instance, he was tempted in every way, Hebrews says, and yet without sin. How long can you go without a sinful thought or emotion? 
My longest is probably when I'm sleeping. But even then, some of my dreams, whoa. How long can you go? And Jesus took the very worst the evil one could give and went down undefeated. He never sinned. He kept the law perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yep. Every time. Never lied. Always loved. Always honored his father. Bam. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, who do you think the him is? Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. So you see, he never sinned, but what was he treated like on that cross? Sin. He was treated like an adulterer. He was treated like a tyrant. He's treated like the worst evildoer you can imagine. God made him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. This will blow. This should blow your mind. In and of yourself, and what you've thought, and what you've said, and what you've done, and your motives, and all that. The skeletons in your closet. You don't want the rest of us to know about. You're trying to forget about those. God sees them. But God has taken all of that and put it on another, the one who never sinned. On the cross, Jesus took that. And God took the merits of Jesus' perfect obedience and perfect life and has given that to you as a gift. It's what theologians call imputed righteousness, stamped on you like a coat, you wear it. So the Father, for all who trust in Christ, the Father actually looks at you like you always obeyed, like you never messed it up. Do you get that? Do you ever feel insecure kind of when you come into the presence of God? You're like, oh, I don't know if I really belong here. And yourself, you know, I don't belong here. But to, do you realize, to wear the righteousness of Christ, you can come before the Father and he sees you in the righteousness of Christ and it's like you always did it perfectly. What has Jesus done with that monster of the law? You're free. You are out from under the law because Jesus fulfilled it for you. It no longer looks at you and condemns you and calls you guilty because you have the law keeping of another. And your heart can say, it's like I was perfect because Jesus did it perfect for me in my place. I'm free. I'm set free. I'm no longer under condemnation, under the, under the finger that's pointing. I, I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm filled up with the righteousness of Christ. He's done it for me. He saved you from the law. He did what you could never do. Not only that, he saved you from sin. Look at Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you who were dead, what were we? Dead, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see here, Jesus has taken care of both the penalty and the power of sin. He canceled the record of debt. So all the things that you've done in your sin, the sinful deeds, you're now forgiven. That, that debt you owe has been paid in the blood of Christ. It's gone. It's free. You're free. You're forgiven. Do you know that? You're forgiven? Let him forgive you of all that stuff. Paid for on the cross. But not only are you taken care of, is the penalty taken care of, the power is taken care of. You who were dead in your trespasses, that's that... It's zombie dead, right? You got a poisonous heart. You, you demean God, deny God, don't want God. God made you alive. What does that mean? When you trust Christ, you have a new heart. That's what Jesus meant in John 3. You must be born again. You have a new start in your heart. Whereas before your heart was hostile to God. Now your heart... Uh, says in other places in Scripture, responds like a child to a father. 
You begin to see more of how beautiful and wonderful and loving and awesome he is. And you want to please him. You want to follow him. You want to give him glory. You love to praise him. You start loving to hear his word. You start loving to sing to him. You start loving to serve him. Because you're alive with his life. Have you trusted Christ? And have you sensed the, the snap of the chain? Look, we... We have two words that are important here. One is justification, okay? When you, when you trust Christ the first time, you're imputed with his righteousness, forgiven of your sins. How, how fast? How long? Bam. It's yours instantly, made right with God. Then there's another word we use. Usually we call it sanctification. You're becoming more like Jesus. How long does this take? It's really important. A long time. None of you are there yet. No offense. Me neither. Some of you are farther along. So, uh, it takes a whole lifetime. And the first one, trusting in Christ, that justification, being mate right with God, that's the foundation for the second one. But then the second one, we have that new life and the power of sin is broken. It doesn't own you anymore, which means now there's a fight. There wasn't a fight at first. You were just dead, floating down the river of sin. Now, the, <laughs> welcome to waking up Welcome to the street fight. Fighting with sinful inclinations, sinful thoughts, sinful deeds. Fighting because you're alive. Because you have the Holy Spirit. Because you have the word. You're new in Christ. Now you can actually fight. You're awake. You're breathing. You see what Jesus did? He broke the power of sin. He fulfilled the law for you. He broke the power of sin for you. Well, if the, if the monster has three heads, law, sin, and death, and he broke the first two, through his life, death, and resurrection, well, what do you think he's gonna do with the third one? Look at verse 53. Look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So he is saying, if you trust Christ, this feudal body you're in right now, something's gonna happen. We've looked at this the last couple weeks. What's gonna happen to you when Jesus returns? You will rise. You will be changed. You will lose this, you will shed this futile body and you will gain one that's glorious and powerful and imperishable. And you will be able and fit for enjoying the presence of God and what he has for you in ways you cannot imagine. It'll be glorious. You know, we need to imagine it. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What Paul means there is there are some people who are gonna still be walking around here when Jesus comes back, okay? But what, notice what he calls death. We shall not all what? Sleep, okay. This is trash talk. This is trash talk. He just called death what? Sleep, okay. Is that how you feel when you, when you hear someone you love is about to die? Oh, they're just gonna take a nap. Or is it a little more sobering than that? It's terrifying. It's horrific. You grieve it. You mourn it. You should. We... The human race can't beat death. It's been owning us forever. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus, Jesus started talking like this before he raised up a little girl. Oh, she's just sleeping. And they all laughed at him. Why is he calling death sleep? Because he's saying, because I wake dead people up like you wake sleeping people up from a nap. Death is nothing to me. I, I, kick, I kick death in the head. We shall not all sleep. That's the way we talk about death in these Christian circles. We won't all take the long nap, but we will all be changed. And just imagine for a moment, this is an imagination kind of a verse, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound some noise coming from the distance that gets so loud. And then somehow, right, 
Everything's been going on as normal, and somehow everything stops, and there he, there he is. There he is. And I, and I would imagine a lot of feelings will come through, like, one will be like terror, because, ha, <laughs> glorified Jesus in all his holiness. <laughs> and then, and this is the best kind of joy, I like a little fear in my joy. Whoa! And then, oh, and I know him. <laughs> We're friends, and he knows me. And is it true? Oh, he likes me. <laughs> yes, right team. <laughs> right? <laughs> Some people will be like, oh, no, oh, no. We'll, yeah, and we'll be like, yes, and you'll be changed. What's that going to be like? I have no idea that this old body, if you're still around, walking around, waddling around in that moment, all of a sudden you get to just go, heck, yeah, in your imperishable body. Will be changed. It must happen, Paul says in 53. It must happen. It cannot not happen because this is what God is doing in the world. This is what Jesus came to earn. It's a, if, if you don't get raised, it's like God didn't like what his son did. It's like what Jesus did was nothing. And that's impossible. We know that the Father is pleased with what Jesus did, and Jesus earned your resurrection. So you will rise if you are in Christ. God will make sure of it. He's committed to it as if he's committed to his own glory. You'll rise. And that's why we talk like this in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Hmm. Death is swallowed up in victory. Who wins, death or Jesus? Jesus. Now, that's a strong hero. He's defeated death because he's defeated sin, because he's fulfilled the law, because he lived, he died, he rose. And now what do we get to say together, verse 55? Now we get to trash talk. Oh, death. You ever looked at death in the face? Had a little conversation? It's personified, but come on. You, sometimes we stare death in the face. And death says, I am gonna eat you for lunch like I do everything else. I always win, I destroy everything. I always have and I always will. Your life is nothing but futility. Read Ecclesiastes, try if you want, gain stuff if you want, you're gonna lose it all because I always win. That's what death says. And we look at death and say, Where's your victory? Where's your sting? I have a hero, and he kicked you in the head. If the head of death is like a viper, Jesus has put the viper in a headlock and ripped out his fangs, dripping with poison, and tossed them over his shoulder. What is he gonna do to you now? Gum you to death, right? The viper of death. George Herbert, old Christian poet, said this. Death used to be an executioner. The gospel has made him a gardener. I love that. Death has been domesticated. Uh, okay, if you like Lord of the Rings, which I do, death used to be a Nazgul. You know what a Nazgul is? These ghostly wraith-like things with their dark robes and they're terrifying. According to Herbert, now death is like Sam Gamgee the Hobbit. Because <laughs> he, you know, opens things in the dirt and puts in a seed and plants it and waters it and it grows. What can death do to you but plant you in the ground so that you'll spring to life, transformed and better than ever? Bring it, death. Right? That's what we can say. 
the futility's not over. We live in a futile world. But we know the one who has destroyed our enemy. He's fulfilled the law for us. He saved us from the penalty and the power of our sin. And he has defanged death. He's won the victory. And when he comes back, he's gonna finish the job. And we will rise. If you believe that, how should you live? How can you live? Look at verse 58. We've seen our three-headed monster enemy we cannot beat. We have seen our hero who has destroyed our enemy. And now we see how we can live because of it. Look at verse 58. Therefore, therefore, therefore. What does therefore mean? Because Jesus did this, we have his victory. Therefore, this. Therefore, what? Take, it, take us in a couple phrases. Look at his next phrase. My beloved brothers, the Greek word there means siblings, family, so it's brothers and sisters. My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable. That reminds you of what's in the beginning of the chapter. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse one. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the what? Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Be steadfast, be immovable in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. When the current of futility is washing over you and you think, I can't make this, it's not enough, I'm not good enough, I can't do enough, it's not working, remember who you are. Are. What was that adjective he used right before brothers? 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers. We don't use this word very much. It's a title in two ways in the New Testament. Beloved, capital B. You see it, for instance, in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes that the Father has blessed us in the capital B, beloved, singular. Who is the beloved of all eternity? It's Jesus. He is, the, the Father loves Jesus with an indescribable, eternal love. Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's important to see first because when you trust Christ, you're now united, connected to the beloved. And guess who that makes you? Beloved. I need that, because my heart always reminds me of how I don't deserve to be loved by God. I'm telling you, I don't. I don't. Even just as a peon creature, why would the one who made the universe pass a thought my way I don't, why? Not to mention the fact I've been a rebel. I've been, I've been horrid. Why would he love me? The, the safe answer, the only answer, the right answer, Jesus lived for me, died for me, rose for me. I'm in him. He's the beloved. And guess what I am? Beloved. Do you know that about yourself? In the midst of the futility, this world, all its brokenness, remember who you are and that you're loved. And be steadfast and immovable on the gospel being the source of that love, who Jesus is. In him I'm loved. He won't forget you. He loves you. Not even death. He won't forget you even through death. It's just a nap. He'll wake you up from one day. Come on. You're loved. You're loved. You guys, this is why Christians sing. You know we sing more than other religions? It's really weird. Some of you still don't get it. We sing because the gospel cracks open our hearts to where we are loved by a person. And, you know, I don't know what percent, I don't know if there's ever been a study done, but what percentage of songs are love songs? 
too many. <laughs> we sing our love. We even sing our pain. But why do we sing our pain? Because we have somebody who's listening, who's compassionate in our pain. We're loved. Let, let yourself be loved by a person. Don't, listen, I love theology. Systematic theology is important. But there's a danger there in that you turn God into like a math equation. A math equation. Can you answer the facts correctly? Hey, the facts show us who God is. Those are important. This is what he's like. This is what he cares about. But if you are missing the person for the factoids, I don't think you've quite got what it means that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of the Father into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, I love you. Right? You're loved. Let yourself be loved in Christ. Second thing to add, look at, the, look at verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable. Not only that, because Jesus rose and you will too, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is so precious, so precious. You wanna quit sometimes, it's too much sometimes. Futility's too heavy sometimes. I can't keep going, I can't make it. You're loved, you're gonna rise, always abound. What's abound mean? Full of, always full of the work of the Lord. Keep going. Keep serving. Why? You're going to rise. It's never wasted. I went and I tried and it didn't work. It was wasted. It's never wasted. It didn't go right. It didn't respond right. It didn't happen right. It's never wasted. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This verse keeps me afloat. It's meant to keep us afloat. Even when the futility rushes on, we're when the tide comes, we're buoyant, we float. Because Jesus rose, and we will too. So do the work of the Lord. Keep building up one another. Keep serving. Keep praying. Keep working. Keep being involved. Your labor's not in vain. And share the gospel. What's the work Paul's talking about up in 14? He says in 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Part of the work he's talking about in this passage is telling people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. Uh, some will say, our culture will say, hey, no evangelism, that's bad, okay? When they tell you that, they're evangelizing. I just want you to know that. They're telling you about their worldview and saying you should believe it and live by it, okay? So hey, no fair, call flag. Second thing, evangelizing is the most natural and normal thing you've ever done. Read Yelp. <laughs> Have you tried this new restaurant? What is that? I've got good news for you. These people serve great sushi at fair prices. This will change your life. Evangelizing. Do you really know the only one who can defeat our worst enemy. Really? Is it really true that no one can stand against the law, sin, and death except the one? And he's beaten him, and you know him? Aren't you gonna tell somebody? Aren't you? What do you have to fear? You're going to rise from the dead. You're going to rise from the dead. Be brave. It's true. Be joyful. You're loved. Be free. It's not up to you if they believe or not. But share the gospel. Think about who, who is it in your life? Where can you meet a friend? Where, where's a place where you're like, you know what? It might be time right there. Will you... Pray about that, consider that, and I dare you, I dare you to really ask God hard for opportunities. He'll set you up. Ask God for opportunities, and then pray that you'll be bold enough to actually walk through it. You ever caught yourself praying for opportunities? God says, here's an opportunity, and you're like, too tired, too scared. 
I did that last week. I'm with you. Walk through the opportunity. You're not a salesman. You don't have to seal the deal. Uh, as some, it's the old cliche. You're one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. You're sharing something beautiful. Share the gospel. When Florence Chadwick was 34 years old, she attempted to become the first woman to swim the 21 miles across the Catalina Channel from Catalina Island to Palos Verde. The weather that day was awful. The ocean was ice cold. The fog was so thick she could barely see the support boats that followed her. The tides and current were against her, and to make matters worse, sharks were in the area. They actually had to shoot at the sharks from the boat to keep them away from the swimmer. What are you doing? At daybreak, she decided to go forward anyway, expecting the fog to lift in time. The fog never lifted. Her mother and trainer followed her in one of the support boats, encouraging her to keep going. Support crew fired rifles at the sharks. She kept going, but at the 15-hour point, she began to doubt her ability to finish. At 15 hours and 55 minutes, she stopped, and with huge disappointment, she asked her crew to take her out of the water. Because of the fog, she could not see the coastline so near. She later told a reporter, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I could have made it. The fog had made her unable to see her goal, and it felt to her like she was getting nowhere. Two months later, she tried again, and though the fog was just as dense, this time she kept going. Her time was 13 hours and 47 minutes, breaking a 27-year-old record by more than two hours. Can you see the victory that Jesus has won for you? If you can see it, you can make it. Let's pray. Jesus, you have won the victory. You fulfilled the law, you saved us from our sin. You've defeated death. Lord, so often we are reeling, we are suffering, we are struggling to keep going. Will you remind us of your great love for us in Christ and what he has done? And that as we trust in him, it's ours. And we're alive. And keep his victory close in our minds, in our eyes, in our hearts, so that we keep going, that we endure, that we trash talk death and say, where's your sting? And we follow you all the way, wherever you call us to go. Do this in us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.